Welcome to New England Lacrosse Journal's Chasing the Gold podcast, your destination for all things lacrosse. I'm your host, Kyle Devitt, and in studio, without me, is Mr. Jack Piatelli. Jack, how we doing? Doing pretty well. Winter is upon us. I uh, woke up this morning and <laughs> frost all over my car, the, the lawn, so I had to warm up the car this morning. I actually just got back from Hawaii. I was in Hawaii playing in the Hawaii tournament, 60 and older. It was uh, a lot of fun to watch. People said to me, uh, what was what was the lacrosse like? I said, very, very slow. It was very slow. But uh, it, was, it, was, it was a lot of fun. And we got some great news this week that the lacrosse is going to be uh, part of the 2028 Olympics in, in L.A. So I'm excited to hear that. Great for the, for the game. Yeah. It, it, don't cheer too loud. It's sixes. <laughs> Which is, sorry, sorry to be dismissive. It's been, it's, it's a great. step in the right direction. I guess. It's like, oh, we play lacrosse today in gym class. Right. <laughs> That's what uh, yeah, I, I think it, it is great. I, I wrote a, I wrote about it. You should support it. But I, explaining it to non lacrosse people what sixes is versus lacrosse is maddening. Like field lacrosse or even box. They're like, well, wait, why aren't they playing the other one? I'm like, I don't, I don't know, man. <laughs> I don't know. We're just trying to get everything together. We're trying to unite everything. And our guest today did a great job of uniting the Bryant Bulldogs last year, bringing them to a great record, winning record, and getting into the America East Tournament. Mr. Brad Ross, how we doing? Doing great. Doing great. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, we think we've been playing email tag for, oh, I don't know, since you were named head coach. Over there at Bryant, we go back a little bit because I covered you for your pro career, playing for the Cannons and the Nationals. And yeah, we, we had some fun. We had, we had some exchanges. Mr. Brad Ross loves himself a deep shot. I, I love it. You were ahead of your time, man. Like, I really, like, as far as like two point lines and things go, how I, I want to talk to you about that first because that's what I'm excited to talk to you about as well as uh, being a coach, being a player. Like, I always remember you being one of the first guys to just, you pull up, man. You pull up and you rip like you're a long pole, but not. And it's awesome. Talk me through a little bit about how you developed that style in the the pro league after being at Duke for so long. Yeah, honestly, I think it's actually pretty funny. And I'm sure a lot of coaches feel this way, but I probably would have hated myself as a player if I was coaching me. I think when you're going through that, certainly you kind of have your different skill sets. And that was one that just kind of developed for me and, and something that I became pretty good at. But, you know, it's it's weird how now you look back on it and we're kind of joking about how long it's been since we've probably seen each other, just how you change. But I think now coaching and being in a different role, it's funny to me sometimes when we hammer our guys all the time about shot selection and, and what types of shots you take. And then someone will send me an old video and be like, what, what are you doing here, coach? <laughs> I was going to ask you if that happens because it definitely has to happen, right? Like. The, the old YouTube highlights are everywhere. Yeah, occasionally. You can't hide from that stuff anymore. No. Brad, you say to yourself, how did my coach let me get away with that? Probably because it was going in, right? That's probably why. Well, what's funny is, and we actually were talking about this as a staff and something I believe in a lot as a coach. And Coach Janowski did a great job of this and, and certainly continues to the day. And I think when you're coaching offensive guys, like the most important thing that you got to do, in my opinion, is you got to film with confidence. And they got to feel like they're the best player on the field every time they go out there. And so, yeah, I mean, I think there's certainly some of that, that when I was playing for Coach Dino and, and certainly kind of after that, you felt like you could do no wrong. And you're able to do some pretty cool things when you feel like that. So those are things that we're hammering our guys every day. And certainly there's discipline, there's different pieces. 
But we want to make sure when they walk on the field, they feel like they're the best guys on there. That's got to be quite a challenge for you as a head coach to keep the motivation high and the confidence at a level that everybody um, wants to participate with 45, 50 guys on your roster. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that if, if last year's team did anything really, really well, I think that they did a great job creating roles, creating values for everybody, that everybody had some sort of contributing factor, whether that is guys on the sidelines being juiced up on the sidelines, providing their teammates juice, off the field stuff. Some guys did some really, really cool things last year from a program building perspective. So as long as everybody feels valued and feels like they have a role and they're contributing on the team, I think it's a little bit easier. But you're right. I mean, that, that's definitely a part. Unfortunately, they're only going to play 20, 25 guys on game day. So the other guys got to feel like they're contributing in some way, shape, or form, or else they're going to feel pretty hollow. I think a big part of your success last year was developing an offense that kind of was totally different from the year before, whether it's graduation, guys leaving for a graduate year somewhere else, or or even transferring in a couple of cases. When you got to campus and kind of saw what you had to work with, what was your your first reaction? I actually tell this story a lot because people ask me about some of the moves we made and, and they'll say, oh, it was a genius move, moving Golds and Greninger to attack. But I tell them the first day that we had practice, we split up, go to the goal if you're an attackman. And I looked over, we had four attackmen. That was it on the entire team. So we met pretty quickly afterwards and figured out that for us, how do we get your best six players on the field? And I actually say this in recruiting a lot because people ask, like, how many attackmen are you taking or how many middies are you taking? And the games changed so much from when I played. When when I played in college, the middies stood next, stood up top. The attackmen stood next to the goal. Nowadays, like everybody's everywhere, so you're just trying to figure out how to put your best six guys in the field. And for Aiden and Kevin, they are obviously two of our best, if not our very best. So how do we get those guys on the field? I think with the the changes you said, it's funny. I I coached for what I would consider defensive head coaches for 14 years or so as an assistant so when you get your first chance to kind of run it yourself it's like all right boys let's rally rally everybody here we go <laughs> we're gonna play fast and enjoy ourselves and we certainly did that I was gonna say like watching the offense at Ohio State which I back when I was doing analysis for inside the cross I was very I was critical of it because I, th- I saw a lot of mid-range stuff right and I, I thought that there could be more cutters fast forward all you ran was cutters and fun and gun. And like you attacked from every single angle. Like I feel like a big part of the success when I saw you guys play against good teams, bad teams, whatever, was the unpredictability of what you were doing. Not even the randomness of it, but the ability to get guys into spots where they could have good shots. Is that kind of part of what you're talking about there? Yeah, I think specific to, like you mentioned, shot selection, that's something that we talk about almost every day. And and I actually heard it. I don't remember who did it, but someone did a really cool uh, video. I was watching it this summer. It was a good way to explain it. And they said, if you walk into an Apple store and they've got 15 versions of iPhones and you got 60 seconds to get an iPhone, if someone hands you the iPhone 14, five seconds into the store, you're taking it. But if they hand you a two, then you're probably going to hold out. So for us, like figuring out what are good shots for the right people, because the reality is, and we kind of joked about like me as a player, if I put myself in a situation, maybe a 12-yard shot was a good shot for me, but it may not be a good shot for somebody else. And that's not to be critical of that person. We just have to have a pretty good understanding of who we are. 
I think the second part you mentioned about kind of some of the randomness to that, certainly we have like starting patterns and starting things that we do. But a lot of the really good stuff that happens in our offense is kind of in the later half of the shot clock where you're right, maybe a possession before a guy cleared through and this time he fades or like the guy who was up top is now behind the goal. You try to create some unpredictability for the defense so that you can get some more of those kind of what I would call blown assignment type goals. Do you find players coming in as freshmen, you talk about playing to your strengths. You find that a lot of players don't know or understand what their strengths are and you've got to actually teach them you're stronger shooting the ball from 10 yards out versus 12 or 15. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a, a, a process for a lot of these guys. I mean, I think we have guys that have played at really high achieving high schools and quote unquote hotbed areas. And then you've got guys that maybe haven't. So maybe for some of those guys who haven't, they've been asked to do more. And certainly that is a highlight of their game because maybe they can do some pretty incredible stuff. But then at the same time, you kind of scratch your head and say, what the heck were you doing there? So there's certainly a process for them. I think what I've seen is with the evolution of offense, like I said, a while ago, long time ago, everything was top down. There were certainly more two-handed players in the past. There's a lot more kids, though, that are, are well-versed in wing dodging and pick play and two-man games than they were 10 years ago. So I think guys are certainly farther along, but that's not to say that they're going to do it the way that we do it. So there is a, a pretty long process in teaching them how we want to play. At the beginning of the show, I said you won the America East tournament, but you, that means you went to the NCAA tournament and played Hopkins, a team that you have a lot of history with as a player and, and coaching against at Ohio State. That game didn't go great for you guys, but getting there, I think, was the one of the most fun journeys, I think, of any team in New England at Division One level. You continuously surprised teams. I mean, even your championship game in the America East final was you beat Albany in a double overtime game. And I remember watching it live and, and the stream, stream wasn't great, but I'm watching, I'm just like staring. I'm like, what? Because there was a couple saves at the end. You couldn't tell if there were goals or not. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, Ingolts just pops up, gets the winner, and it, it, everything kind of exploded. Can you talk about a little bit about the season and that moment and then knowing you're going to get to the NCAA tournament? Yeah, so you know, I think one of the things that I've been so lucky to to have in my career is just be around incredible head coaches and like really different people, whether it was playing for Coach Pressler in college and then Coach Janowski and then working with Lars at Brown and then kind of flipping the player-coach relationship with Coach Pressler and coming here as an assistant with him. And then Nick Myers and Joe Ampelo, you learn a lot about just different styles of leadership and different kind of ways to run your program. And one of the things that I learned from Joe that I thought has been really impactful for me is, is as a leader, there's really three things you got to do. Number one, you have to tell people where they're going, right? So what, what's the vision for the program? What are the goals that you want to set, right? So that was one of the first agenda pieces that we set out for the team. The second thing, and probably the most important thing in your program, is the mission of the program. So, right, we tell you where you're going. We tell you how to get there. And that's the really important part, because if I just give you a set of car keys and say, go to California, but I don't give you the GPS, you have no idea how to get there. So for us, the mission is pretty clear. Number one, love each other. And we'll talk about each of these for a second. Love the process. And the third one's overachieve. Okay. I'll come back to the mission in a second. And then the last part are going to be like those principles and pillars of your program. So the reason why I went here, Kyle, is like I think about the mission of the program. Number one, 
right? Create meaningful relationships. I think I don't try to sound super old when I say this, but I'm definitely in a different generation, the guys that we're coaching. And the lack of deep, meaningful relationships on teams is, is pretty startling sometimes. Guys will play with each other for three years, but have no idea that, you know, that kid lost a family member or he has a brother with special needs. Like they don't know anything about each other. So that's something we spent a lot of time doing. The second part, love the process is one of my favorite parts, you know, of the job. I hate the word grind, right? That's a, a word that's outlawed in our program. Cause I think everybody, when you say grind, you get this like negative connotation of I'm getting on the train. I'm going to New York city. Like this sucks. The reality is for us, you're playing lacrosse with your friends, or you're shooting lacrosse balls, you're doing four and threes, you're lifting weights. So if it feels like a grind, we're probably doing something wrong, right? Or you're doing something wrong. And the last part is overachieve, right? That's the third part of your mission is overachieve. And I thought last year's team, as I mentioned, they did two things really well. Number one, they created roles and had value for everybody within the program. And then number two, they overachieved. There's no doubt about it. When you look at some of the guys who the program lost, and I mean, there were 10 guys that were on the roster in 2022 that were on different Division One rosters in 23. And for that team to overachieve was pretty, pretty special and pretty remarkable and, and really proud of them. Yeah, I think one of the things to, the, to, to highlight there is the brotherhood of being on a lacrosse team, I think is always... I didn't realize this when I was coaching in college. I didn't realize that you had to manage relationships too. You didn't, you didn't just get the practice thing and get your game schedule and get that ready and do your recruiting. It was like, oh no, I have to make sure that they're having fun. They like each other. I coached a lot of teams where dudes didn't like each other. I was on a lot of teams where dudes didn't like each other. Well, I'm not telling that story yet. We'll save it for another podcast. I had a, had a real bad uh, practice one day, and we'll talk about it sometime. But there was definitely, I think the hardest thing when you're a player going to be a coach or you're going to another level and you're in a new place is trying to establish yourself as who you are and, and kind of give an identity to the program. And a lot of people kind of lean on who they are as a person early on in their coaching career, and then they evolve into, okay, I have to coach these guys as humans not lacrosse players or depth charts or positions. Like these are people and you have to kind of get them to get along. Cause if you don't do that, you're never going to win. And that's what winning comes from. I, I really believe that now. And I know that from the last three years, uh, being an assistant at the high school level, like that's, and being a JV coach, like getting guys to have fun and like each other is a huge part of the job. And I, it's one of the biggest pieces of advice I give to new coaches or, or people that are coaching kids even is just like, just like have fun, man. Like don't be the coach everyone's scared of. No one, no one wants to play on a team where they're scared of the coach. That's over. That might've been the way rest in peace, Bobby Knight. That might've been the way he did it. It might've been the way his generation did it in the generation after that. But sports are different now. Kids are different now. You have to adjust and you have to adapt. So I think it's a great point to make and it's a good system to, to build culture which people use that word that's a word that should be outlawed in everything i do i can't yeah. stand that word the it's like what does that mean what are you saying when you say to me your culture is this yeah there's a couple i think important points there i actually i do agree with you on culture it's a, a word that's overblown not the importance of of it but right. just that word i like the word environment more i think a lot about 
that we talk about in recruiting, talk about our team, like everybody's got these great things that they put up on the wall. And I talked about a little, a little bit ago, but if you want to like a real snapshot at someone's culture, like go to practice, go into the locker room. It's more about the micro interactions than it is these like big moments. I think the second piece there, Kyle too, is like, I do have a little bit different perspective on leadership. And I, I do think it's important that like when people talk about old school leadership versus kind of new school, I, it's not like negative or, or positive. They're, they're just different styles of leadership. And there's certainly times that calls for maybe one style and another time that calls for another. But I do look at leadership a little bit more east-west than north-south, and especially on these big teams. It, it's just, it's really hard to look at leadership very linearly where it's the coach and then the associate head coach and the captains, because often you get kind of paralyzed by that. So for us, one of the first things that we taught them is the most important primary characteristic of leadership is you, if you have influence, you have leadership, right? So everybody on the team has influence over someone. So that was kind of one of the first starting messages is that like, stop looking to the coach, stop looking to the captains. You need to, to lead certainly somebody else. And there's a secondary point to that. And this is maybe a little bit counterculture, but like this whole concept of lead by example, I'm not a huge believer in. Not like leading by example is a bad thing. It's just like typically when someone says I lead by example, I'm not much of a vocal leader. I say, okay, like, what are you doing? And they say, I do extra work. I go to class socially. I'm squared away. They list all these things that in my opinion are just baseline characteristics of being a part of our program, right? True leadership is the ability to make people better. So for a lot of these guys, certainly may not have influence over a senior or a fifth year, but they certainly have it over a classmate. So how they're leading each other is really important. And leadership is selfless. Like I, I, I have learned that I've come to learn that. I mean, even managing freelancers for New England Cross Journal. It's like, if I don't put your work first, I'm not doing you a good job. Like I know that I have to, I do my own job. I already know that I know how to do that. I'm good at that. But getting you to believe that you're good at it too is, is a, is a big part of it. And I was talking about selfless leadership, like the way to influence people is sometimes by example, like you're saying, but not always. A lot of it is, I like the positive side of it. And I do think you're right. There is a time for kind of negative and there is a time, I think in every season for every coach where, listen, sometimes you flip out, like sometimes it's enough. And I, I do think that that happens. Out about. Right. It, it has to be something constructive. You can't just flip out because the kid's late. Like, yeah. I don't think that's. that's I break down mistakes into three categories, right? I think there's physical mistakes, there's mental mistakes, and then there's like effort mistakes. Mm -hmm. So very rarely, if ever, are we going to criticize someone on a physical mistake. And this kind of comes back to your, your time as a player, like, I've always hated when coaches are like yelling at kids to catch the ball. Like, yeah, I, I know I, I tried to right now. There's a secondary part of that. of like, if they're not putting the work in on their own, then you certainly can kind of square them up about it. But you know, where you can get after guys is right. Mental mistakes, right. If they're not in the right spots because they haven't put enough time into it. But the last one is the one that we're hardest on. It's just effort. Like people talk about non-negotiables, but for us, like the two things when you come to practice every day that we talk about every single day is being excited to be there, having juice, just being out of your mind to be on the practice field. And the second is, is what we're talking about is how hard you play. 
I think there's, for whatever reason, there is this, in my opinion, like wrong piece of people think that like having fun and being excited and being disciplined and tough are mutually exclusive, that you can't have fun and, and enjoy yourself, but like not take bad shots. I totally disagree with that. And I think for the long term of a program, if kids are excited and they're happy to be at practice, then they're going to put in more time. Like they're, they're going to enjoy lacrosse. They're not going to associate practice with negative stuff so that they're more likely on a Sunday or a second session during a practice day of getting out there and getting some shots up. I think in some cases with programs, players have lost the enjoyment in playing the game. It's become more of a business than it has an actual game. What are your thoughts on that? When I think about maybe the style and some of the things that we do now, I think people who know me are really surprised because like from a kind of background and where I've been and kind of who I was, if I had told myself 10 years ago that like our sidelines would behave the way that it does, I would have laughed. But like when you guys are talking about maturing and growing up, like it's really hard for those guys who don't play to be into it. As coaches were like, oh, you got to be into it. But what are they supposed to do? When you score a goal, they're supposed to golf clap on the sidelines. Like it, it's not easy to not play. You right. know, I think some of these things, like how can we make sure that people are feeling value and enjoying themselves when maybe they're not having that opportunity on game day? And the other thing is you've got freshmen coming in that might take a spot from a guy that's been starting you for three years. The expectation is, you know, to your point, be a leader now. Another guy took your spot. It's got to be very challenging for the players. But in order to have a successful program, the environment you want to build, you got to bite your tongue and, and you got to continue to work hard. But you've got to encourage not only guys you're playing with, but maybe guys that beat you out in the position that you want to play. And I thought Ample had a good saying for that. He used to say, accept your role, right? But you don't have to like it. Like, you might be in a position where, you, like you said, you maybe lost a position. You need to accept that fact and you need to execute what the team's asking of you, right? It doesn't mean that you necessarily have to be happy with it, but you have to do, you know, what we ask of you. There's there's no doubt to that. Like when I came in for the podcast and Jack was doing it by himself. Yeah, exactly. Like, hey, now we're together. And you, you are stuck with me, my dude. Yeah, it's wonderful. You are stuck. It is, Brad, it is a, a rough ju- rough run. I got a uh, question uh, regarding your playing days. You were three-time All-American. You went to the Final Four at Duke, uh, I believe it was four years in a row, become a coach. Was it difficult for you to coach after having such a great career? Like, you highly motivated guy, very successful, like three-time All-American. Were your expectations of players, you coaching to have the same passion, desire, work ethic that you did? Was it was it difficult to get on the field and, and understand and realize that not everybody likes the game as much as I do, that doesn't have the passion, desire, and the work ethic that I have? And, and how do you change that? Yeah, that's a great question and, and one I've probably struggled with my whole life because I've, I've always felt like, even when I was at the high school level, that you cared more than everybody else around you. I don't pretend to have a magic answer for that. I, I do know that that transition from college coaching to, excuse me, from college playing to college coaching is never easy. I actually remember like it was yesterday. I think it was like midway through the fall. I remember calling Ronnie 
computer and saying, it's, this is my first year at Brown. It's like, it's really hard scoring goals. Like, I don't remember it being this hard. And he kind of said, okay, listen, those six guys that you played with, five of those guys were all all-stars last year. Right. So there, it's not going to be easy. I think certainly, it, you know, coaches go through things where they all grow and learn. And, and I'm very lucky to have, have a guy that we just kind of sent off into the coaching ranks and had turned down a finance job. I'm really proud of him. But that is a, a hard process because I think when you're really young too, like there's a, there's a balance of being the young coach on staff that's relatable, but at the same time, like you're not friends with the players and that's everybody's challenge. I think for at least the first three or four years that you're coaching. How did you overcome that? Cause I, I mean, I, I remember that too. I remember players like were my age and I was just like, oh, this is weird. Like, what do we do? I just like, am I just like a jerk? Like, how do I get them to well, I mean, be in line? I mean, gosh, you talk about weird. I mean, because of everything that happened at Duke, I coached Reed Selvin. I mean, it was a, literally one of my best friends in college. And I coached him my first year at Brown. One of the things that I, I shared with Connor McMahon, who's at Fairfield now in his first year, I think when you're a young coach, the way that you can kind of try to build these relationships is teaching them some skills that maybe they don't know. Right. I think that's a great way to just start a relationship of, hey, this is a way you can do things. Or this is a, something that worked for me or worked within my program and then kind of build some credibility with them on that first part. And then you have to work at the relationship part. I think certainly it's not an easy process. I said, I don't think it's, there's a magic answer to that, but you know, you have to give them something to say, okay, this guy, A, knows what he's talking about, right? And B, he just wants to make me better. And that's ultimately what you got to do, obviously, as every coach, but especially as a young assistant coach. I'd like to talk about recruiting. You mentioned it earlier, but I'm very impressed with coaches like yourself who've had a lot of success at Navy, Ohio State, Duke, and now obviously you had a great season last year. Being able to navigate and understand the players that will be able to fit in your, your program, only fit, I'm going to talk about fit, but have success, you know, was that difficult for you to, you know, find, how do you know what guy you're recruiting is going to be successful at Bryant after having been at Navy and Ohio State and you're recruiting completely different players academically and athletically? Yeah, good question. I think there's a common misconception but at Navy, for example, that all those kids dreamed of being in the military. I don't think that could be farther from the truth. I used to say, if we called 10 kids, maybe one of them would say, yeah, my dad served. I'm really interested in it. Maybe one or two of them say I have no interest in it. And the other eight just had no idea. So I think like getting people onto campus at whatever institution you're at and, and letting them experience that place firsthand is really important. And in some ways, I feel like that here. People haven't been to campus. They don't know the facilities they have. we have here. They don't know how highly ranked the business school is. So there's a little bit of a, of a, a process of getting people over a hump of maybe what they believed about a place, right? Whether they believed it about Ohio State or Navy or here, you get them here and then you're trying to kind of really have them understand what the reality is of an institution. With regards to here... I think for us, one of the things we, you've heard me talk about a lot is, is effort and having fun. Those are things that we talk about in the recruiting process with kids. And you're trying to identify that on that visit. How personable is somebody? Are they someone that we feel like would fit in the locker room? that can fit into kind of what we're promoting here. Because if, if they're not, they're going to have a hard time fitting in. 
certainly, and and probably not a great fit for the kid or us. But I, I also don't pretend to think that we're perfect in that either. It's, it's really hard, quite honestly, in a recruiting process. You talk to a kid a couple of times, he visits once, twice, and then you got to make a decision. But that can certainly be challenging. Sure. Now, the other thing that I'm sure you talk about in the recruiting process now that you're at Bryan is, I think it's a hidden gem, is that you're in the ocean state, one of the most beautiful states in the country, surrounded by by, by the ocean, a great area to live. And obviously for the players, I'm sure it's it's a, it's a great place. And I've been on your campus a number of times and the, the progress they've made in the facilities, the indoor facility you have in the new stadium and for a small school, it's really very impressive. Yeah, but, and, and the reality of it is it's it's only improving. I, I laugh at when I was here and as an assistant, Casey Broderson and I were literally in a janitor's closet in the basement, like no windows. The weight room was in the basement. It was carpeted. There were six racks. You know, and now just in the current year, they just finished up the new field hockey facility. They're breaking ground shortly here on addition to Burn Stadium, new training rooms, new film rooms, new locker rooms. And then the, probably the most exciting thing for us is that we are moving the business school across the street to its own campus, right? Expanding that part of it. But I think that goes back to what I was saying that you just got to get people here and, and they can see it with their own eyes and, and they walk away really impressed. I mean, you talk about the history of, of Brian. It was a D2 school 20 years ago. I mean, I was coaching against Coach Whipple on the side there, like back in the day with, with, with St. A's and, and Franklin Pierce and, to see it now, it doesn't even look like the same place. Right. Like even driving in, you're just like, wait. I, I remember I did a, a campus visit. Uh, I went to, I think probably Presser's second to last year. And he's like, oh yeah, meet me in the new building. And it's like, wait, what is it? It's like a office attached to a weight room that has like a wall. You can play wall ball. And I was like, what is this? Yeah. How did you build this? It's out of, and I, I remember going to tournaments there grow, growing up and stuff. And I was like, what? What this came out of nowhere? How yeah. is this here? And I think that expansion, like people don't realize unless they've been there previously and now they're there, they're like, oh, well, it's different. Everyone talked about like that arch you don't walk under uh, unless you graduate. But now it's it's this huge sprawling thing. Yeah, and I do think what makes this place a little bit unique. There's no there's no mystery here in a lot of places that I think academics and administratively sometimes kind of butt heads because you're fighting over the same resources. I think what our administration has realized and has done a really good job is, is just seeing how athletics can improve the profile of an institution nationally. And, and that's something that they've really identified and seen. And they've done a great job certainly supporting us and, and making sure that we have what we need to be successful and that we coincide then and help bring hopefully more talented students and notoriety to the place. I think one of the things that I want to touch on recruiting again from a different angle that, that Jack attacked it from, you guys find a lot of, not raw, but I would say like guys from areas that a lot of other places don't traditionally hit. Like you have tons of Maine kids, uh, like not only on your team, but coming up through the ranks that you've already, that have committed to you guys. And like, how do you pick those guys out? Cause I know that, they do play in the tournaments. Obviously, they're all in the same thing. It's not like they're in a, a bad place learning how to play lacrosse, but you pick the best of me continually. And I, I've seen it, especially the last, this is your class this year. You picked out some really good players. I know you can't talk about them, but how 
do, do those kind of kids fit in like kids from kids from small towns, kids from non-traditional areas? You also have Massachusetts kids, Long Island kids, Maryland kids. How does that how do you meld that and how does that shape your recruiting approach? I think when we were talking about before kind of Bryant being like a hidden gem, I, I think what you get naturally with some of the New England kids is they have more historical context with the school. It's not completely new to them and they kind of know, you know, what the calling cards of the place is. So I think for us, certainly that's, it's exciting to be able to recruit some really good players from New England. I think one of the emphasis you've seen in recruiting, as you mentioned, I can't speak to it, but uh, a heavy emphasis on recruiting Long Island right, harder. I think specific to that, like the location, you're three hours from Long Island. So for a family who wants to maybe have their kid get off the island for college, but be close enough to to see games, it makes a ton of sense. And I give the, the previous staff a ton of credit for recruiting. As you said, some of these like non-hotbed kids who are athletic as heck certainly have some work to do maybe in other areas. But the reality is the game has changed so much. When I think about my last year at Navy, our two best middies were from Texas and Colorado. So you have to do a good job as a coach of making sure that you're watching all the teams and the different club teams. But then there's the last part of it that I, I do believe relationships are really important in recruiting. And there's some coaches who don't listen to club coaches or listen to high school coaches. I, I do. I just think that they're the ones that know them. And certainly some people do a better job of it than others, but you have to trust some people because the reality is you can watch a kid play three or four times, but sometimes that can be hard to make a decision after three or four times. So that's where relationships come, come in, I, I believe, from a club and high school perspective. How involved are your assistant coaches, Travis Harrington, Chris Gabrielli, and Cole Pecora involved in the recruiting process? I mean, 100%. I mean, they, they're going to be on the road every weekend in November, as will I. Yeah, like I said about relationships, if, if you don't trust your people, then what are they there for? I think ultimately uh, I've always prided myself on recruiting, and so I certainly do a lot of it. But they are all obviously very experienced and have had great success in all different stops of their way. And so we've got to collectively come together to put together the best class that we can. And I think naturally some of these, as I mentioned, some of these relationships, like I may have stronger relationships in Maryland, for example, because that's where I'm from. Whereas like Gabs knows everybody in Long Island, right? And Travis is from upstate and Cole's from Connecticut. So you've got kind of a nice little spreadsheet there of different relationships and different people that we can all kind of lean on and our, our people for some of these comments about recruits. Now, when you hire your assistant coaches, is that something that you take in, in terms of whether you hire them where they're from, if, if you have two guys from Long Island, or is it more, more based on can they do the job and what, what experience they bring to the table? I think for me, my process is very unique because when I was an assistant coach, I always said that when I was ever fortunate enough to become a head coach at the right place, that I would want to try to surround myself if I could and people that I knew and have existing relationships with. So when you look at our staff here, Coach Gabs coached me in college. He was my defensive coordinator at Duke, and we've been close ever since and when he was at PC. So their PC's loss is our gain, right, bringing Chris in, and he's been unbelievable. When Travis, I coached, he graduated in 2012 and had a great relationship with him and helped mentor him through his process, so kind of a unique dynamic there. And then with Cole, the reality is for Cole, kind of the way he got here is is when I was hired, I just called a bunch of people that I knew and I said, who are the young guys out there that, you know, you can recommend? 
And his name came up from like four different head coaches that I know of someone who's worked his ass off and, and, and brings a ton of value. You know? And so honestly, the interview process lasted about five minutes. But I'm really proud to have him here with us and you're too. He's doing a great job. I got a, I got a shout out. He's a Springfield college grad too. God, I know. <laughs> Sorry, Kyle. <laughs> yeah. Well, we wore it today. Just so you know, I, I, I as people who listen to the podcast know, I, I hurt my knee and one of the people in the PTs, they wore a Springfield shirt one day and I was like, you go there. And she's like, no. And I was like, good. And just walked out. <laughs> and just walked out. And everyone's like you know shocked. That. They're like, what was that? And I was like, I'll tell you tomorrow. It's it's bled into every facet of my life, Jack. I hope you're happy. I, I hope you enjoy that. No, it's really unbelievable how many Springfield College grads are out coaching in the lacrosse world. And I've gotten to know Cole and uh very impressive young man. He's going to be very successful. Yeah, he certainly is. And and we're lucky to have him. And you joke about Springfield. My wife's a Springfield College grad, played soccer there and went on to coach college for a number of years, kind of before giving up her career to help me pursue mine. But you're right. A very proud group and, and obviously been really successful. Some might say too proud. Yeah. Well, uh, some, not everyone. I want to kind of touch on the, this, this weird thing that's happening with New England teams and teams in the East Coast. Everyone's jumping conferences. Yeah. I know you don't have a ton of influence over that, but I do want to know your perspective on it and yeah. kind of how that ch- does it change anything you do. When you're, you're, oh, I'm in the NEC this year. I'm in the America East. I'm in the MAC. Like, how does that, does that impact anything else that you're doing? I think twofold. Number one, when teams change conferences a lot, it's hard to create like lasting rivalries with people. You, when, when you're in a conference for the same uh, long number of years, you kind of have all these battles with people and recruiting battles and, and on field battles and you create really, really cool rivalries. Uh, so I'm curious to see how that develops as these teams are changing conferences. I think like one of the things I've talked to a lot of head coaches about this, one of the challenges now with all these kind of super conferences and comings and goings is like, scheduling is harder than it's ever been. Right. Like for us, like that, that beginning of March time, it's a hard scheduling time because a lot of these super conferences are playing conference games already. And, and so it's making getting really good out of conference games really challenging. So we'll see how that matures over the next couple of years. But that, those would be the two pieces that I think are unique, to, at least from my perspective. Are there any regulations in place where a school decides to be an ex-conference and a year or two later he wants to join another conference? It's just, just you can decide on. Yeah. Well, the, the problem sometimes, and I think a lot of people don't realize this, is that it's not like us as a lacrosse team can make our own decision. Right. It's a school decision. Yeah, you kind of look at Merrimack and what's been going on there and NEC and now right to different conferences. And, and you're really just tied to whatever your administration wants to do there. You know, for us in our athletic department, and a lot of people are really proud of the way the fall sports have, have improved. The American East overall is a really strong conference, especially in the soccers. Both our soccer teams had great years. Men's soccer right now went from three and 10 last year to 14 and one. So there's a lot of improvement there, but there's a lot of different things to like take under consideration when these teams are jumping conferences. And Jack kind of touched on it earlier, and you touched on it as well. Rhode Island's a great state. There's three D1 teams in it, and you're now a part of a Rhode Island rivalry, right? Yeah. I'm actually writing about that for for the mag- next issue of the magazine, the Rhode Island 
It's it's so bizarre to me that there's three D1 men's yeah. lacrosse programs that are very prevalent and they all play each other and they all have kind of a history. I know you've only been there for a year. You're going into your second year here, but do you feel that? Like, what was your experience with the rivalry rivalry with Brown and, and Providence? Yeah. I mean, I was a part of it here. I was an assistant coach. I think it, it, it feels very similar just because of proximity, like the Duke Carolina thing. Like our kids are seeing those kids out socially, like they see them all the time. No, it's a big deal. I mean, I think it's a huge deal. It's something we talk about a lot. I'm certainly very proud to ha have had some previous success there. And I know as you look at them, looking at it now, I mean, the Ocean State Cups kind of made its way around. And, and that's certainly one of our goals. You talked about vision. That's the, the first vision goal that we always have is you want to win the state. You want to be Brown. You want to be PC. And those are things that you know, I, I know really, really matter to our guys. And it certainly matters to me. Not only are you rivals, but you're all right down the street from each other, which is very interesting. I mean, which brings a different dynamic to it, because like you said, you, you, when the players go out, they run into each other socially. Yep. So that, that makes things very interesting and probably more an incentive to, to beat them, getting to know them off the field. Yeah. And I worked at Brown and, and I've had great relationships with people there and all different institutions and all really, really cool and, and awesome places and great programs programs that are all run kind of differently and have different, uh, certainly strengths and weaknesses. So I think that's been exciting for us to see. And, and, and hopefully we can get back out in the practice field here in a little while and, and hopefully make some progress here on, on winning that first game. Do you find Providence, probably not so much Brown, but do you find that uh, you have players that are interested in Bryant and Providence recruiting some of the same kids or not so much? Yeah, no, I mean, you'd be, you'd be surprised. I think we recruit a lot of the same kids, all three of us. I really do. I think when you look at you know, some of our kids that have maybe chosen to come here, maybe they're very business focused. That's something that they have a, a lot of interest in. Maybe there's family history there or they're very clear cut on they want to go the finance accounting route. No, we definitely run into those guys a lot in recruiting. I think it's, it's always interesting, and we say this in recruiting a lot, I do think that when you visit different types of places, it just helps you make a decision, right? When, when I was going through my process, a part of my process when I was that age, you know, I wanted to go to a school with grass and trees and kind of that traditional college campus. I didn't personally want to go to school in the city. So I think when a recruit maybe comes and goes to, to Providence and Brown and they come here, maybe just from a location standpoint, they say, hey, I really love the city. I love what this is like, or I don't. And I think that helps that decision kind of make itself that way. Teams right now are kind of in the middle of making their schedule. And like you said, it is, it is difficult. Can you let us in on any insights teams you might be playing that you didn't play last year? Yeah. Yeah. We'll release it here shortly. I've mentioned it certainly to our alumni and, and to our parent group and to our kids, but we'll open the season with Providence on February 10th. And then a new team that we're excited to add in will play Harvard. And we'll play BU, right? So those will be the three teams that we'll kind of start our season with. And I think that's actually something we talked a lot, a lot about recruiting today. But that's one of the really cool, unique things being in New England is you have all these awesome teams that you can play. And not only certainly from a budgetary standpoint, but classes, time missed, you can play some really great teams here. They're no farther than an hour, an hour and a half away. And I think it's great for the game, too, to have BU play Providence and Harvard play Bryant and it's just great for the New England lacrosse. If you want to go watch BU play, now you can go watch BU and Brian play at the same time. 
Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think the world of all those coaching staffs and they got those guys do an unbelievable job, all three programs that we start the season with and all different, but, and it's going to be a heck of a challenge. Coach, thank you so much for joining us here on Chasing the Goal. It's, it's been great. You did great. Just, just to reiterate, you did a great job. And uh, thanks again for coming on. Thanks for hanging out with Kyle for 45 minutes. That's probably something you didn't want to do today, but he's never wanted to do that. But my paycheck in the mail. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's very nice, very nice meeting you and hope to see you down the road. Thanks, guys. Thanks again for listening to New England Cross Journals, Chasing the Gold Podcast, the Jack Piatelli and Kyle Devitt. See you next time.